Good to be together. Um, you ever have one of those nights where you didn't sleep very much, and today felt like yes, just a continuation of yesterday? Uh, that was that was one of my days. I spent the last three days down in Los Angeles, four days actually, at uh, at a training. I just kind of want to share uh, always some of the things that I'm up to. A lot of people wonder what your pastor does throughout the week, and uh, a lot, a lot of different things. But a lot of of that for me uh, is around the area of continuing education. That's important for every believer in Jesus to challenge ourselves when it comes to growing deeper in our faith, to be able to uh, respond to the things that are happening in the community at any given time. And so I spent some time with some new friends this week. I got a picture of these folks we'll throw up on the screen here. Uh, this is my cohort group. I've, uh, I'm working uh, towards a certification in clarity and life coaching with uh, Awaken, which is a ministry out of the Church of Zoe Christian Fellowship in Whittier, California. Some of you have met Dave Koblen, uh, who's my personal clarity coach. Uh, we've retained him as a congregation to help us work some of these through these values and, and goals and dreams that South Everett Foursquare has in terms of reaching the neighborhood. And so Dave has invited me to be a part of this cohort. Uh, it's It's about 75 hours of training to learn how to most deeply listen to the power of the Holy Spirit and sit with people and ask them good questions to help them understand the dreams that God has already put in their hearts, which is really incredible how God gives us vision and then he gives us a resource to help us get us there. And the vision that the Lord has given given Katrina and I for the season that we're imparting and sharing with the church is that South Everett exists to breathe life on the dreams of those who exist and live in this community. Um, And it's not the process of telling people they have dreams because don't we know that the Lord gives us dreams? But sometimes it's sitting with people and helping them realize uh, the good things that are going on in them. And so I uh, had a chance to spend some time down in Southern California this week, which was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for your, your grace and understanding as I go uh, and, and seek uh, the Lord on behalf of this congregation. But know that's always happening. We're always moving forward in the areas of education, and I try to bring that uh, to us on a regular basis uh, because the world has questions. Uh, the world wants to know, and, and the Word has answers, and the Spirit has answers. Amen? Amen. So... Uh, yeah, I just wanted to share that with you and some of my new friends, uh, folks that we're working with. Put that up one one second more. Just beyond the training, it's neat to see the way that the Lord starts to orchestrate things. Down here in the front, you see Dave. Some of you know him in the white shirt. Uh, in, the, in the pink shirt next to him is, is Bishop Ed Smith. He's the pastor of Zoe Christian Fellowship. He just handed off the reins of that fellowship after 30 years to his son so he could pursue some of the work that the 501c3s that have been birthed out of this church are doing. And it's really neat to see how they align with what's going on here in this neighborhood. They have a project called the Nehemiah Project, which is helping urban foster kids find homes and vocations. So they're doing a lot just with the fostering processes. Uh, And then they've got another 501c3 called Joseph Business School, and they're working with young women men and women in the community uh, to help them earn the vocational skills to start businesses and do entrepreneurial work, uh, seeing kids rise up out of poverty and, and start businesses. There was a session going on with students down there when we were there, and then the Awaken Life Coaching. But I was sitting in Pastor uh, Ed's office yesterday just telling him about the work that's going on here, and he goes, I want to come and see that. Uh, I want to partner with you in being a part of what it looks like to mentor urban youth. That's a big part of what they're doing right now is developing um, uh, designing curriculum to figure out what's the best practices for providing mentoring to people who are dealing with uh, post-traumatic stress and, and trauma, uh, sustained trauma, and helping raise people up right. Uh, and so it's just neat to see the way that the Lord continues to work in us, the things that he's doing. We meet 
and, and gather and worship on the weekends, and it's real easy to get into a, just a rhythm of this is what we do. And it is what we do, and this is what fuels the rest of what's happening. It's so important for us to remember that God is doing a bigger work. Uh, he's doing a missional work with us. We are a congregation of people. We are a church, but I believe we're also a missions organization. That's who we are. God is calling us to do more. Um, and uh, I'm just excited to see how that plays out. Amen? Amen. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, we've got a lot of content this morning. We're going to be in part three of our series, Sexuality, Culture, and the Bible. Uh, this is a series that has been long needed. Uh, it's a conversation that needs to continue to happen more and more in the church as our culture has more and more questions and concerns and uncertainties concerning sexuality and how that plays out uh, in the life of, of a person who's been put on this earth, designed and created in the image of God. Uh, it's a conversation uh, that we have a lot of space to continue to grow in. Um, it's something that as the church, we can engage in places where maybe in the past we haven't been as willing to engage. And uh, this, has been a, this has been a fun series. This is a challenging series to me. This is opening up my eyes to the fullness of God's word to understand what it means to be made in his image, what it means to be a person who's been gifted with sexuality and how to use that right and what happens when we don't use it right. And what happens when we come across people who have been damaged or hurt by the church previously because of the way that they've been engaged with concerning their understanding of their own sexual orientation? This is a big discussion. It's more than we'll be able to cover in four weeks. And as I've said the last few weeks, in this series, we're just providing some anchor points to come back to. We're working to get resources into the hands of everyone who would want to explore this further to understand how to have a strong biblical sexual ethic and love our neighbors well. That's it's a place and point of contention, and we need assistance. We need resources, and so we're preparing those things for you. In week one, we talked a lot about identity. We talked about how we can't understand what it means to be created in God's image. We can't understand what it means to be his child. We can't understand sexuality apart from who he is, who he's created us to be. We had our friend Cody Whittington come and share uh, about that. Last week, we talked about judgment what it means to point fingers at other people when we got stuff going on in our own lives is a very challenging message for me as I pursued that and prepared that. Uh, and this week we're going to talk a little bit about the anatomy of singleness and marriage. This is how singleness and marriage fits into this bigger conversation about sexuality. It's how sexuality fits in with the bigger picture of singleness and marriage, what it means to be created again in his image. So this morning I'm going to share a little bit about my own testimony, about my own journey. Uh, that's important. As we grow in this space, as we become more confident in our ability to discuss God's plans for sex in our lives, we have to be open and honest about where we've been and how he's redeemed us. That's so critically important. So I want to share a little bit about my story, the good story of about how God has redeemed me. We're going to spend a little bit of time listening to a young lady uh, who gives a talk about what it's like to be single uh, and what it's like to want to be married and what it looks like to be whole in either of those spaces. Uh, then we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning talking a little bit about God's design for sex and what happens when we use it out of context. Amen? Amen. Allow yourself to go to some of these places. What I also want to be aware of is that conversations concerning human sexuality are deeply rooted in places of pain for many of us. 
The goal is, over time, that God's grace and his truth would help us move forward out of those places of shame, if we still have places of shame around this, to be fully free and fully confident in who God has created us to be as married people or single people. Knowing that whatever has happened in our lives and what's ever happened in the past is forgiven in Jesus' name, and he's called us to move forward into better places so that we can help others move forward into better places. All right. So a little bit more about my life. Um, Everything about this conversation today is grounded in the context of mystery. We'll get to there. It's in the context of Ephesians. We'll hear about that in a little bit. But growing up, man, uh, girls were a mystery to me. You remember when the opposite sex was just a total mystery growing up? Uh, That was a reality for me, too. Uh, I was curious about this ministry, but unfortunately, um, it was the kind of curiosity that over time... It was something that began to consume me. And as a young person, I lacked the guidance that I desired when it came to understanding God's intended design for sex. I just didn't have the guidance I wished I'd had in my life. And because of that, I ventured into places and spaces related to sex and desire long before God ever desired for me to venture into those spaces. Sometimes things just happen. When I think about Life. There are many things in life that require very specific certifications, very specific types of education before we're given permission to use or engage with or to practice. Certification is important. I think about things like driving a car. We don't let people drive cars without getting specific certifications. You cannot fly a plane without certifications, at least legally. Uh, You can't even become an elementary school teacher. You can't foster a child. You can't become a neurosurgeon. You can't own or operate a gun or open a counseling practice without very specific certifications. You can't do any of that. The law requires that you have those certifications to do that legally. So getting certified in these fields, becoming public or becoming subject matter matter experts, mastering the tools, it's critical. We have to do those things in those fields. And without proper training... We can do a great deal of unintended damage in the lives of other people if we just go out there and use tools that we haven't been trained how to use, right? (laughs) Right? John's having open heart surgery tomorrow. You want me to do that for you? Okay, yeah, right. No, 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 no. Good intent, good intent, (laughs) unequipped. Good intent, unequipped. It's important for us to remember when we think about our own history, our own lives, our own past concerning sexuality. Good intent, unequipped. That's a more grace-filled way to think about the brokenness of our pasts. Because I don't think most of us desire to be in spaces maliciously. We just, with good intent, with curiosity, unequipped, wandered into spaces. And that's where the enemy can capture us, with shame. It's important for us to remember. It's also interesting to know that our society has no recognized or legally required certification process when it comes to proficiency related to singleness, related to marriage, or with uh, engaging our sexuality in our own lives. There's no certification process for that. There's good advice. More and more in our school curriculums, there's, there's... Uh, I think, ill-advice. At present, the certification process is simply just be you. Just be you. 
You figure it out. Search your own heart. Look in the depths of what's inside of you to discover who you're supposed to be. Good intent. Unequipped. Unequipped with God's word to understand. Where do we come to understand our reality, our identity? Is it in us? Listen more and more to what culture says about following your heart. Just do what, do what feels right. Your heart is good. But the word says that at our core, our heart is desperately wicked. Good intent, uninformed, unequipped. Just search inside of you and you'll find it all. <laughs> Things that we need to go back to concerning the word to understand what is true and what just sounds good. Because the only way we're going to bite on something that's not good for us is if it sounds right. Well, that kind of sounds right. Love is love. Yeah. Well, wait, wait, I thought God was love. How do you anchor something to itself? Unless you're trying to knock it off the place where God has intended it to be, right? Anchoring things. All of this is in jest to a certain extent concerning these certifications as we think about that. But it's all to say that when we aren't clear on our design, uh, when we're not clear on the intended use for a tool that has great power, oftentimes people get hurt when it's used incorrectly. It's important to know that there is a plan for sex and there is a plan for sexuality. It was designed by the one who created us in his image. He gave us a certification manual for sex and sexuality through his word. That's where the certification process happens. And you know what? It's a comprehensive manual. It, it has everything we need. There's nothing that we need that isn't here if we intently and deeply search the Scriptures. And it's to be used as a universal invite to everyone who bears the image of God to find the freedom that God offers for us. This is a grace and a truth kind of freedom. It's important that freedom is both grace and both truth. Because sometimes culture says if there's any truth left, that's, a, that's, a, that's an oppressing kind of thing. Don't put that on me. I am free to be whoever I've been, decided that I want to be. That's the message of culture. It's been fully adopted. But the message is freedom comes with grace and truth. The grace is he wipes my sin out. The truth is there's a path to keep me from falling into sin again. Grace and truth. This, this book, this manual, this Bible, this is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. It's not to be used for the purposes of shaming or interrogating people. That's where we have, sometimes with good intent, used this tool, which is also powerful, probably the most powerful tool. I'm not going to give someone a sword who doesn't know how to use it, right? We can do a lot of good with this. And we can do a lot of harm at the same time. It's a light for our feet, a lamp into our path. But it's not to point at people or to that interrogation light, to shame people into the corners where they forget that they bear the image that the book says they have. We have at times used this to illumine the brokenness of other people while conveniently allowing our own darkness, broken places to hide in the dark. Whew, that's what we're learning. This conversation about sex and sexuality, should it has humbled me. I hope it humbles all of us to say there's a different way that we can approach these conversations. 
about this sword. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active. That word, that word, word in the Greek is logos. It's the same word in John that says, In the beginning was the word, was the logos. So imagine this. For the Son of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. This is interesting. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You see in parentheses here, this word judges means fit for and skilled in judging. Last week we talked about a different kind of judgment in Matthew 7 where Jesus said, do not judge, lest you be judged. Seems like it might contradict here, right? Well, if you're not supposed to judge, then what is this book doing judging me? The Bible must be full of, of inconsistencies and we should throw it out because it's not reliable for us today. We're enlightened. Except when you go to the Greek and you realize that this is two totally different kinds of judgment. When Jesus says don't judge, he says don't overjudge and don't judge the people who haven't signed up for judgment. This kind of judgment from the word is like the knife that the surgeon who is skilled and informed will use to heal John tomorrow. There's a precise way to go about that, and this is the kind of judgment. It's going to judge what's wrong in his body and make it right. Just like the Word opens us up and makes us right when our hearts aren't right. Different kinds of judgment, but this light, this lamp, judges correctly. We can trust whatever it comes, wherever it cuts, however much it hurts. It's a convicting, not a condemning kind of hurt, right? It convicts us. It helps us to move in the right direction. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture, all of it, is God-breathed and useful for teaching. It's useful for rebuking, which is sometimes okay to let somebody know they're not going in the right direction. It's good for training and correcting in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's us, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The training manual is important. When I was growing up, I didn't have the training manual. I didn't have it. It wasn't available to me. I did not have early exposure to what I needed to walk the way that God had called me to walk in regards to sexuality. That's good. That's a good word because it means that I don't have anything to be ashamed of. I didn't know. God says, I want to just rescue you from what you didn't get yourself into necessarily. That keeps me from shame, which keeps me leaning into this conversation. This is a story of redemption. But because I didn't have the people in my life that I needed at the time to do what I needed them to do, I had problems. But by God's grace, these are problems. And there are subsequent wounds that God has brought a great depth of healing to in my life. That's why I can stand up here confidently and say that he has set me free. See, when I was 17, the Lord convicted me concerning my practices of consumption related to sexuality. He convicted me one day getting off a bus, going to a summer camp in eastern Washington. He convicted me. There was people around me that knew that the way that I was living wasn't right, but they just kept loving me. It was the Spirit of God who convicted me 
He challenged me when it came to what I watched, what I was listening to, and how I choose, chose to view and interact with women. Right there on the spot in mid-July of 1997, he just said, it's, we're going to do it differently now. It was time to change my mind about some stuff and to explore what it meant to view women as created in the image of God. He was changing my mind. As I walked further down a path towards sexual sobriety, impurity, old habits started to melt away. But it was in the way that snow melts off a roof over time. It didn't all go away at once. It wasn't like mid-July 1997. Everything was better. It's a process. Healing takes time. But it slowly melted away. Not all the weight of those old habits lifted as once, but as time went on, much of what had plagued me concerning broken sexual practices had evaporated. And then one day I was just like, wow, where'd all that weight and shame go? It just melted like the snow over time. And God did the melting work. He did the healing work. I just was patient. How does this resonate with us? When we think about our own broken places, maybe they're old and dormant. Maybe they're living and active. Whatever it is, the Lord says no shame, but transformation and freedom in the name of Jesus. That's what he says. So over the course of the next six years, God afforded me the grace to understand what it meant to be a whole person in my singleness for the next six years, from 17 to 23, and all those years that you want to date and be with people and all the rest, the Lord just said, no, you're just going to figure this out. You're going to learn what it means to be single as one created in my image, and you are going to know that you can be whole. Even if you never get married, you are just fine. It's interesting. He walked me through the most of that process in, in relative proximity to the lady that I would marry when I was 23 years old. I made that commitment when I turned 17. I met Katrina when I was 18, and then we just became really great friends. We got married. There's our wedding picture, right? 17 years ago. I had less hair back then. I'm getting more hair as I get older. <laughs> so this girl also, she was a mystery to me. She was God's grace to me. She was the one who understood where I had been by God's grace. She was one who understood and prioritized her identity as a child of God over a spouse-to-be. She just got it. And I needed that. I needed someone that could anchor me. God used Katrina to help me find the heart and vocational purposes of both singleness and marriage. Just as a friend, she helped me understand what it would be like if I was just single for the rest of my life. She helped me pursue something because I saw something in her. But she knew the time and the place, and I was still learning. And I thank God for the woman that he has put in my life to be a, to be a helper, to be a, an opposer. We talk about how men and women in Genesis, you see how they oppose one another in a good way. It's like two pieces, two planks leaning up against each other, leaning into each other, equal but diverse and different. It's really important to understand. God created male and female. In his image, he created them both. Not one subservient to the other, subservient to one another. Submitting mutually the way God has intended so that we could serve one another in vocation. 
Like I said, everything I, I want to talk about this morning is around this idea of a profound mystery. The word mystery in the Greek refers to this, this esoteric truth, or that's kind of the kind of a truth that is only revealed by the elect to the one the elect decides to give the truth to, right? Some truths, some things we can discover on our own, and some things have to be handed off. Some things have to be imparted to. This mystery is the kind of truth that this text is talking about in Ephesians. In this instance, God is the one who holds the truth. He, in fact, himself is the truth. So what we see here is God revealing truth to those he decides to give it to. This word mystery shows up 27 times in the New Testament Greek. Three times in the Gospels, six times in the book of Ephesians. This first reference in Ephesians to this idea of mystery happens in chapter 1. And it's related to the revelation imparted through the Holy Spirit to the people that God's love was for everyone. It was this great mystery that Ephesians says was kept, that the Creator kept it. He hadn't choose to yet impart the fact that the grace of God would not just be for the Jewish people. It would be for the Jewish people. It is still for the Jewish people, but it would be for everyone. That was a mind-blowing reality for those who followed Yahweh, followed the God of the Old Testament, that this love, when Jesus dies on the cross, and goes to heaven and parts the Spirit to us who we call on today, would say, God's love is for everybody. Yeah, yeah, I know that. I know that. I've been in church my whole life. I know that. But when we stop and think about the people in our lives today, right now, because they're different from us, that we choose to withhold the love of God from, how deeply has that revelation settled into our soul? We still do it. Not as, not as condemnation, but as conviction to say, when I'm going through this, the Lord says to me, there's still people you're withholding love from. And that's different than the mystery I revealed to you. We pick and choose who we withhold love from. And we do it very subconsciously. It's very subtle. It's how the enemy works. This great mystery, this love is available, this grace is available to all people. And God revealed that to us. In Ephesians, Paul says that marriage is a great mystery. <laughs> Amen? Anyone say that? <laughs> Who's been married long enough and still realizes that marriage is a great mystery? God, I don't know why you set it up this way. This is hard, right? To submit, to, to work together, to be united in our diversity, in humility, in equality. How do we do all this? This is a mystery revealed by God so that his church would understand the kind of relationship that Jesus wanted to have with his people. That's what marriage is for, first and foremost. We kind of get into like companionship, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But marriage exists, first and foremost, to reveal the kind of relationship that Jesus desires to have with his church. Ephesians chapter 5. Mutual submission to one another. In Ephesians 5, we get back to this language that we had in Genesis, that a father, um, a, a man... And a wife will leave their father and the mother, and they will become united as one. United as one. This mystery is revealed to us by God. And I like the idea of marriage as a mystery because it reminds me that there's always more to know. There's always more to understand in the context of God's creative design. There's more to know. As we go through the series, as we read the word again and again, we realize there's more to know. There's more to understand about all this. 
I want to show us a video. This is from a, a gal named Joy Egeritz-Reed. She's a 30-year-old single lady that talks a lot about understanding what it means to be created in God's image and whole as a single person. I just really like the way that she uh, talks about this. She's a little nervous in the video. She talks kind of fast. But check this out, and then we'll keep going. Relational hope. So I was asked, can one be fulfilled without being married? Also known as, hey, Joy, you're single. Are you doing okay? How are you holding up? Can you breathe? Can you breathe? Are you good? <laughs> I, I would hope that we would all know that, yes, like Gabe said, one can be fulfilled without being married. And I would hope that we would also admit that there's many people who are married who are greatly unfulfilled. So I think I was asked to talk on this topic not just because I'm single and breathing, um, but like Gabe said, I created this thing called the Illumination Project where I wanted to bring together people who are single and dating and married, talking about relationships with older, wiser counsel, and talking about marriage now. But I definitely have some insecurity around the work that I do because I have these little voices in my head that are like, yeah, you know, I'm not much of a marker, but it just seems like if one of the main spokespersons for this marriage ministry is not really successful herself, we're probably not going to sell a lot of product. I don't know. I mean, I just think, <laughs> and I believe those voices and I start thinking, man, if I'm forever the single person in a marriage ministry, I'm just going to be Rebecca St. Jamesy myself and true love is going to wait and wait and wait. <sighs> or. Or I'm just going to never get married and I'm going to end up being one of those middle-aged women who is like, Jesus is my boyfriend. <sighs> but enough about my personal problems and fears. It's fine. It's fine. <clears throat> I actually know I'm going to continue talking to you about my personal problems because um, I want to give you a little insight on some of the things that I've been thinking about to hopefully let you see where I think some of my generation is at. And one of the things that I've realized is that if I'm not fulfilled in my singleness, I'm going to be let down in marriage. And I realized that I had set marriage up on this pedestal and that it was the end-all, be-all. And once I got married, my life would start. And once I got married, you know, I was going to be taken seriously within the church. And once I got married, you know, sex was going to be great. And when I got married, I was definitely going to be able to have kids and this and that. And I think that the church has contributed to that mentality. And we've almost kind of made this idol of marriage, which is a good thing. Not the idol part, marriage. <laughs> And so now here I am with a number of my peers. I'm 31, and I definitely think that younger Joy probably thought I would be married and have kids by now, but I don't. <laughs> and so I have to make sense of that. I have to look and go, you know what? I think the church has kind of made an idol of marriage. And, and I feel like, you know, no, I, I don't think that's right. I, I think God does have a purpose for me, and I think that there, there are things that I can do, and I do have a valid position within the church, and I do have a purpose. But then what I project may happen now is that I will start to make an idol of singleness, that I'll start telling myself, you know what, there's all these things that I can do because I'm not married and I don't have kids, and, you know, I'm really good at the work that I do, and I actually really do love to work, and there's all these creative projects I can do with my friends, and I'm just so busy, and I don't have time to date. And when I get to that point, when I get to that point where I'm like, I don't have time to date, I have to stop. I have to stop and go, Joy, do you really not have time to date? Or is it because work is where you can have a win? Work is where you have structure and control, and you don't have control over relationships, and you've been hurt in the past, and it's scary to date, and this is where you can succeed. And then I still have these emotional needs that I know that I need, so I, I can text just enough people who are maybe possibilities, and I don't know, and, and they're texting other people besides me that are possibilities, and we all just get enough of our emotional needs met, 
Or we can go to social media and get those little red alerts that tell us that we're not alone, technically. Or if things get really bad, then I can just do Tinder. It was for research, okay? If you don't know what Tinder is, let me just say it's just about as creepy of a dating app that the name makes it sound. And if you do know what Tinder is, I will tell you that my thumb is very sore. (laughs) So, it was like for a half hour, I swear, and it was for research. (laughs) It's like a, it's a thing based on proximity, like people who are around you. And when I got matched, I was like, who's behind me? (laughs) Um, So anyways, (laughs) we can make an idol of singleness and we can make an idol of marriage and an idol is something that you start worshiping that's not God but I have to look at what scripture says about singleness and marriage and God created marriage and he celebrates marriage and that's why I'm excited for marriage because I know that if I actually go into marriage not to fulfill me but I go into it fulfilled with a partner who's who's fulfilled then we will have a partnership of purpose and that's when as husband and wife we reflect God's love to one another and to the world because if we're believers that we will believe that marriage is something beyond ourselves and that's what I'm excited for Well, now, Joy, I hear you saying that husband and wife together reflect God's image to the world, and so therefore you're saying that as a single person, you're only one half of that equation, so therefore you cannot really, you know, reflect God to the world as good as a married couple. No. (laughs) Sometimes scripture is not either or. It can be both and. I mean, Jesus was single. The disciples were single. Paul was all about singleness. He said, if you can do it, do it. Why? For the same reason that people get married, to have a purpose beyond themselves. And the body of Christ is made up of so many different parts. So together, we make the church. And so I realized that I can have a purpose in my singleness. I think of Anna. Anna was listed in scripture as this woman who was married for like a second. And then her husband died. And she spent the rest of her days on the temple stairs. And it said she was a prophetess. And she fasted and prayed every day. And at the end of her life, she got to meet the Messiah. She got to meet the Messiah. So if Anna was here right now, I think she'd say, yeah, I had a pretty, pretty fulfilled life as a single person. But I oftentimes get this image of Anna sitting on the, on the temple steps and other temple goers coming up to her and being like, girl, it is okay. I know you just lost your husband, but you are still young and smart and pretty. And you're going to find a new husband in no time. Don't you worry, girl. Girl, don't you worry. God bless. God bless. Shabbat shalom. <laughs> As a side church, can I just say, let's be intentional about the kind compliments we give single people, because some of us are old, ugly, and dumb, and I think we deserve to get married, too. Uh, that's just a, just a little bit of a side. <laughs> but here's the thing that I would say that gets at my heart the most for my generation, is that I do think that there are some people who entered into marriage as a partnership with purpose. They weren't looking to it to fulfill themselves, but they actually entered into it and felt that God blessed their union and they were doing things outside of themselves. But then like Anna, one of their spouses died or left the faith or had an affair. And so now there's these deep relational wounds because they're going, God, I thought you blessed this. I thought you blessed us, and we were, we were about something bigger than ourselves, and now I don't even know if I ever wanted to get married in the first place, because this hurts, and there are deep relational wounds. And I see single people who were not distracting themselves in their singleness, and they really are on mission, and they're doing things for the Lord, and they are going, God, you said, I, if I gave you the desires of my heart and made my requests known to you, that you would hear me, and I'm doing things for you day in and day out, and I haven't had a date in 10 years. Or I have had a bunch of dates, but I've heard over and over, I just can't do this. 
And so deep down, there are relational wounds and festering in those married couples and festering in those single people are these questions. They're going, God, I don't know if you're really the God of the Bible that you say you are, and I don't really know if you are that good. And if those questions go unchecked and we just keep going through the motions of our Christianity, I think that postures our heart towards unbelief. And that is what I'm seeing in my generation, is a heart of unbelief. And then that changes where we find our relational hope. Because how's that old song go? My hope is built on nothing less than the love and attention I get from my spouse. Wait, no, that's not it. Oh, this is it. My hope is built on nothing less than the good feelings I get when I go to Africa and help kids. Wait, no, that's not it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And that is the question I have to ask myself on the regular. Do I really believe that? Do you really believe that? Because answering that question, which is not a new question at all, changes everything. It changes everything. And so you're sitting there, you're going, of course, Jesus is the answer. I know that, Joy. You were going to say that, of course, we're at a Christian thing. I was hoping for a pie chart or some stats. (laughs) But I don't have a pie chart or stats because, you know what? There's not a formula to fulfillment in marriage, and there's not a formula to fulfillment in singleness. All I can say is that I try to believe this song. And if I believe this song, and we ask each other, do we really believe this? And that changes everything. And no matter whether we're married or we're single... That is where we will find our fulfillment and our relational hope. Thank you. What I'm learning in this discussion, Chris, can you hit the light there? What I'm learning in this discussion is that there's so many issues that I want to attack. There's so many issues I want to deal with. But Jesus settles it all. He's the starting point. It's not enough to just say, well, well, Jesus, and you're fine. You know, like, but Jesus settles it all. And gives us the grace to be able to walk into confusing, complicated conversations about everything related to all the complexities of marriage and singleness. If it is true, and Ephesians 5 says that it is, that, that through marriage, the church begins to understand what it looks like to be in relationship with the Son. Here's the cool thing. You actually don't have to be married to understand the reality of what that is. You don't have to be. You can look at that and say, oh, I get it. Mutual submission to one another. And sacrificing kinds of love. That's what it looks like. But Jesus is the one that ultimately settles things, these things for us. And if there's something that the enemy would want to make ridiculously complex and painful, it would be the platform on which we're supposed to understand the goodness of God. And so that's what he does, and that's why it's painful, and that's why it's complicated. Ultimately, Jesus settles it. As we walk in these issues, in these places, we want to know that we lead with Jesus. We lead with his grace. We lead with his desire to cut to the core of who we are to understand who he is. It humbles us in this conversation. A few things about marriage. When we think about the, the autonomy, the anatomy of marriage, We see marriage as four things, and I'm going to go through this relatively quickly. We see marriage first and foremost as vocation. There's two options as being created in the image of God to do the vocational work of God. You can do it as a married people person or a single person. 
But one is not better than the other. It doesn't go God married single. It goes God married and single. And there's ways for everyone to do this work. But marriage specifically, there's good for marriage for single people. That's important to understand too. There's good in marriage for single people. Tim Keller would say that marriage is first and foremost for the good of the community. Because think about it. If you have married people raising up consistent homes where things are safe and well, it creates stability for kids to grow up with less chaos. It's good for the neighborhood. It's good for the community. It's good for the city. Now, we'll talk about some of these things in a minute about the ideal and the real and what happens when we don't have that because I didn't have it. I didn't have, uh, I love my parents. They love me. They're both still alive. There's a lot of grace and forgiveness going on, but I didn't have any of that going on. There's chaos I still deal with today as a 39-year-old because that relationship didn't stay intact. And there's grace for that. There's grace for that too. There's grace to deal with the real when the ideal falls short. That's important to know. But we saw it with Adam and Eve. They were the stewards of creation. We saw it with Abraham and Sarah, the parents of the nation of Israel. Ruth and Boaz, a foreshadowing of the redemptive work of Jesus in the Old Testament. There was Joseph and Mary, the parents of the King of Kings. So that's vocational. This is moving the process of Jesus forward. There's Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts who were used instrumentally to advance the early church. God uses marriage as a team to advance his work, both for married people, that couple, and for the community at large. Marriage is a reflection. We talked about that, that it helps us understand God's intended relationship with his children. There's marriage as companionship, a form of, but not better than, single relationships and friendships. You look at Jonathan and David in the Bible, and it talks about the depth of intimacy that they had in their relationship. And maybe some people have suggested, well, were they... No, they were just friends. They were deeply, intimately invested friends. You can have intimacy in same-sex relationships without going outside of God's intended design for marriage. You can be intimately connected with people in a way that draws us close to Jesus. Then there's marriage as the way of procreation. It's just another reason why we have the context of marriage is to reproduce, be fruitful, and multiply. There's all these purposes for marriage. I want to spend our last few minutes talking about the training manuals, what it says about God's intended design for sex. Now, this conversation about sex is a conversation for married people and single people because sex is accessible by both married people and single people. Everyone can access it, right? And in a lot of places, a lot of times, everybody does. It's accessible for single people and married people, both outside the context of marriage. All of this is to help us think that we're all a lot more the same. We don't go into some separate category once we put a ring on our fingers. Because this is all accessible all the time for married and single people inside and outside of marriage. So for us to just excuse ourselves, and I think we have, and I will claim my role in this, that when at the point when I got married, kind of thought I stepped into this other kind of exempt category from the rest of them. One of the convicting things I'm finding through this series is realizing how much the church can do in terms of increasing health and sexuality and relationships by just stop dividing ourselves from the rest of the world that isn't married. More than anything, the Bible says that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. More than it says that we're children, more than it says that we're spouses, we're brothers and sisters. And so we can exist in all of this all the time. 
Sex is a beautiful gift from God that can cause lots of damage when used in the wrong context. When used for the wrong way, outside of design, without getting a certification from the Word, sex damages things in the wrong places. It's important for us to know in marriage, too, because we get this all mixed up sometimes, that that sex is a part of marriage. But it's definitely not all of marriage. (laughs) Just think about that for a minute. Most of the time... In marriage, people are not being sexually active most of the time, if you added up the time, right? That's important to remember. So really, in some ways, sexuality in marriage is not a big deal. But then also, it's a really huge deal. Because if that component isn't working right, even though it's just a small part of the whole, like my heart is a small part of a much bigger whole, but if that small part ain't working right, I'm going to die. It's important. This is an important part. Why did God give us these components? Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I would highly recommend for anyone who wants to know more about this as a married person or a single person, there's three incomplete views of sex. Not wrong, just incomplete. One is that sex is just an appetite. It's just an appetite. Like physical hunger, we ought to fulfill our sexual appetites as desired. That's what the world would say. Just, hey, you hungry? Go for it. It's okay to feed this appetite with multiple people. Just like we would have different kinds of cuisines. This is just commonly understood practice for today. And the more that I understand that it's commonly understood, the less I want to judge and the more I want to help rescue. Because it's not even like people are doing something maliciously. They're just doing what they were taught. But God says there's a better way and we can walk towards redemption slowly, patiently, with grace and love for people who are outside of God's intended plan for sexuality. It helps us to put our fingers back in our pocket and extend open hands. Come towards a better way, right? Talk about the idea that sex is just primarily negative. There's this idea that it's the lower form of self. It's a dirty reality. It's a necessary evil, Tim Keller would say that this view holds. It's interesting that this is a view that's often been held in conservative Christian circles that associates sex with shame before anything else because of brokenness and a lack of courage to talk about it. Whoa. I approach this stuff really humbly as I get deeper and deeper into it and think, Jesus, there's a redemptive work you still are doing in me. I wonder if it could be that The world has gotten sex wrong because the stewards of that reality, God's children, haven't been talking about it. And the reason we haven't been talking about it in a healthy way is because we're bound by shame. Isn't the enemy a dirty, dirty player? How much of the brokenness of society really falls back on those who were supposed to steward and train it well? Oh, gosh. Oh, man. This is, what, this is what makes me know that I can do a lot more in terms of advancing this conversation without changing any of my biblical convictions. It gives me, this is hopeful, because it means I have room to grow with others who have room to grow. We can all grow towards Jesus together and have a better conversation with those who see sexuality differently than those who follow the Word of God. Sex is just a form of expression. This idea is that sexuality is a starting point for the understanding of our identity. That's what's happening in our culture right now. We're saying, if I can understand my sexuality first, then I can understand the rest of who I am. It's what's being taught in kindergarten in this state starting two years from now. 
So who are we blaming? Let's just, let's just have a different conversation about things. Let's say, yeah, sexuality is a huge part of our identity. But where are we first created in the image of God? What if we start there as the bedrock and then everything else gets built on top of it? It will get healthier. God's grace will help us get to healthier places without condemning our pasts. He'll just set us free from those places. Tim Keller's quote, I really enjoyed this. It says, just as our culturally adopted desires for food have shifted away from what our bodies need, it's an issue for me, our sexual needs and desires have been distorted as well. To think that we need something that we don't really need. As the Prince of Peace comes and reveals a truth to us in a brand new way, that he would impart truth to us even in this day and say there's a better way to walk. We can walk in different ways. There's a couple things that we can change our mind on concerning sex. One, that sex is, is not dirty. I think that's that we carry that be, because shame is dirty. Shame is dirty, and that makes sex look dirty. But sex is not dirty. God created sexuality, and everything that God creates is good when it's used for its proper purpose. That's important to understand. It's important to know that the the Christian faith is actually, as Tim Keller would say, he's really smart about this stuff. He would say that the Christian faith is really actually pretty body positive because God created matter and he called it good. He created bodies and he called them very good. And then he himself became a human being. So God is very body positive in this. It's not a shameful, dirty thing. Sex just needs to be used in the right context. This is really interesting. I had to read this a couple times. He says that sex is not only a private matter. What? (laughs) Private when we think about ourselves. That's what we often think, too, is that sexuality is just about me and the fulfillment of my desires. You can live your whole life in that place if sex is just about me, if my sexuality is only about me. It's a public matter in the sense that even when shared privately, it's two people. If there's a relationship connected to it, if it's outside of relationship, it's not healthy. If it's outside, if sex is outside of a committed relationship between two people, a man and a woman, this is a biblical sexual ethic. This is, what, this is where we just stand in a different place than culture now, to say that, A biblical sexual ethic is to say that marriage exists, sexuality exists within the context of a married relationship between one man and one woman. We're just we're we're just gonna have to agree to disagree with culture, and that's okay. We are in a post-Christian culture, and we're just gonna have to be okay with that. We're gonna have to be okay with loving for a really, really, really long time. I said this last week. This will become one of the matters for the church over the next few decades. Will we have the patience to walk it out with people? And not turn a blind eye to behavior, but to see the image of God on someone enough to just stick with people as they figure stuff out. As as God stuck with me for seventeen years and then another six and then another seventeen to get me to where I'm at today. I'm still in process. God gives grace for that. I can give grace to other people without compromising my convictions. Let's skip down here to the end. It's important to know that sex will never fully fulfill our deepest desires. Sex creates a level of intimacy that is only a preview of the greater intimacy that we will later experience with Jesus. Now you're like, whoa, that sounds weird. 
But remember, we're made up of mind, body, soul, and spirit. That sex is spiritual, it's relational, it's emotional. All three of those actually exist outside of the fourth part, which is physical. We can have three quarters of these levels of intimacy without Jesus, without it getting weird. You know what I'm saying? We really can. It's important to know. It's okay to laugh about this stuff. But sex is just a way, a taste, a preview of a deeper kind of intimacy. But the good news is we don't necessarily need sexuality in our relationship to experience that kind of intimacy with somebody else because it's just one way to get to a place of intimacy with Jesus. It's one thing. But like our guest said this morning, this is about understanding what it means to be whole in the image of God. It's really important for us to understand these things. There's so much to have conversation about in these areas. And more is to come. But one resource I would really recommend in the understanding of this deeper conversation is The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. It's where a lot of this final content came from. But I just know that God has set me free. He set me free from enough shame that I'm finally able to stand up and talk about it publicly. Uh, because I've had the chance to walk the road, to have the hard conversations with my wife, to make renewed commitments to her in different areas of my life as I grow into live in accountable relationships. It's good for us to be talking about this stuff with each other. It's good to grapple with the hard discussions and the difficult parts of the conversation. Um, and we're willing to keep having it. We won't have it forever. Cody said, this should be a 16-week series. I'm like, I'm not talking about this for 16 weeks. Four is plenty. But it just gives us points to come back to, remembering first that we are created in the image of God, male and female equal, that marriage and singleness are two different kinds of vocation, and that we get to walk in the freedom that he's given us. We know that judgment is going to hurt us and going to keep us from getting healthy. And we realize that there's a context for all of sexuality. And when sex is used outside of the committed, designed way that it's supposed to be between one man and one woman in a marriage relationship, stuff's going to start breaking. And when it breaks, we come and get very close to people, not with a finger, but with an extended hand to say, I was there too. Can I show you a different way? This is it. Next week, we're going to get into start talking about some of the cultural issues uh, that we're facing today, but maybe not from the angle that we would, we would want to point fingers at certain things, but a way to love people well who are, who are just lacking an understanding of, of biblically-based, beautifully designed sexuality. Amen? Thank you for engaging these conversations, church. I know sometimes it's exhausting, but there's an exhausted world out there that needs the hope of Jesus. And he said that this walk with him will be difficult. So we'll get to other subject matter, but just know that God has a plan for us in terms of helping people get free in this area. Amen? Amen. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. God, we ask that whatever has risen up in us that you want to cleanse, that you want to take away from us in regards to shame, if this has brought shame up for anybody, we say that's a good thing because you want to remove it. You want to take it away. God, replace places of shame with places of conviction and to see opportunities to, to, to live differently, to change our minds about some stuff and walk in another direction. Lord, we pray that this community would always be an open place to discuss the deepest, most painful places of our life in the right kinds of relationships without shame or judgment. We pray again prophetically over this community. This would be a safe place for people to come with their questions, to get close to Jesus. 
and let him do the work of transformation. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. God bless you, church. Enjoy the sunshine while it's out there. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.